and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and joined by security practitioners Sean Campbell, Mike Buckby, and Killian Engler. As I was going through my news feed, I was very impressed when the EU publicized signs of business cyber fraud. And they're not like from the 1980s warnings like phone banking or IRS charity scams. They actually shared detailed signs of how an employee might end up being tricked into paying a fake invoice or transferring business funds. And not only do I have GDPR envy, but I also feel like the EU is doing a better job of notifying the public of when they need to be high alert and some of the signs. And I'm wondering what types of scams have you been seeing more of lately that we need to be aware of? This is Mike. I think still the biggest scams are the ones that are infrastructure-based where it's exploits of either machines or, you know, there's still lots of problems with mobile applications that you get a new flashlight app and it's secretly recording your bank account credentials in the background or, you know, it's a fake VPN that's actually scamming your information. And those are the kind of things that mess up everything. They mess up security for, you know, bring your own device. They mess up your own personal security and passwords. And they have such a broad impact and they're so widely and crazily thrown about that it's not as if they're targeting you specifically, that it can happen to anyone. Hi, this is Killian. I think the article mentioned a couple of them, the pretending to be the CEO or pretending to send an invoice. Over the last year, those have really taken a big upswing. And I see it probably, and not to get in prediction territory, but it's been effective thus far. And I can see it continuing because it's it's so low tech that it doesn't require a huge amount of scale. And the ROI on it tends to be fairly big if you can get a couple people to pay uh, an invoice by you know spoofing an email from the CEO. It's a pretty good investment for an attacker's perspective. And they can kind of do the recon very passively. You know, go look at the website. A lot of the company information is published up at the officers, things like that, details about, you know, the company and the goals and things like that. So it's easy to sprinkle some of those pieces of information in to seem more legitimate. This is Sean. To echo those comments, a lot of the prep work that an attacker could use is publicly available. I can build a campaign around a lot of information that I don't necessarily have to be an insider to glean, especially around impersonating like executives and such. Another thing that I that I noticed is, well, actually, to your point of, I think, I think Mike, you mentioned this as far as some of the vulnerabilities around you thinking you're downloading an app that does one thing and is doing something else that's completely different. Another thing that the article pointed out too was on the investment side of the house, when the, the Bitcoin craze and the altcoin craze took off and there are all these random coins sprouting up that seemingly had these great business models, but nothing to really show for it, but they were raising money. You saw all these ICO rounds and the coin turned out to be completely fraudulent and these people are out of their money. It's actually impacted some celebrities as well. So not going to go away. They're just going to look for the next thing to try and run with and and get your money and your information. I think recently I saw uh, another notification around fraudulent Netflix emails. These attackers basically were saying, hey, your Netflix account needs to be updated. And they, you know, they were this was basically a, an impersonation of Netflix trying to get someone to think that something was wrong with their account. Upon proceeding, they basically would get your information. I would say the popularity of streaming services, this is going to trickle down to the very non-technical consumer who probably has their nephew, grandson, relative set up the Netflix account for them using their actual information. And then that's pretty much the gist of it. So any ongoing communications probably go directly to them, such as anything pertaining to you know an account. And when you hear Netflix now coming out and saying things like, hey, you know, Bird Box 
was our most watched movie ever. You know, it's going to get the attention of the very low level consumer who's now like, well, I got to watch that. Or now I need to get this next. What's this Netflix, you know, that I got to now download. So, yeah. And what really caught my eye too was the contrast of 2019 cybersecurity predictions. So after the new year, I saw on LinkedIn and in my newsfeed about how 2019 security is going to get worse. And it seems like we make that proclamation every year that it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. I'm just waiting for us to hit rock bottom. And so I indulged a bit and I read TechCrunch's security editors, cybersecurity predictions for 2019. And for me, what seems to be getting worse is the government and technology companies can't come to an agreement on what's best for its users and citizens. So for instance, California passed their consumer privacy law, and then it appears that tech companies prefer a federal GDPR light to supersede the California one. And then meanwhile, Australia wants tech companies to create a backdoor. And my question is, what feels worse for you in 2019? I think the value of user data, the intrinsic value that is, is going to go up. I think I noticed the other day someone had pointed out, if you look at any, you could use just a random individual in society today, or you can go to an organization and take a random employee. How many IP addresses are associated with that person, right? So the many different devices that we now have, so those are more vector that companies now have to weigh in terms of security. But then that also in turns becomes when I'm at home, more things I need to be wary about of how they could potentially be compromised, particularly around connected devices that maybe I connect one time and I don't go and monitor it ongoing. So like, for example, I might have an iPad that could be sending data because of an app that I downloaded that maybe I don't even use anymore, but it's consistently sending data and that I just have no concern you know, whatsoever uh, around it. So I I think the more data that we're going to continuously give to organizations without potentially realizing it, it's just going to continue to increase. So I think kind of what, what struck me here is in this article, the kind of fundamentally and you know diametrically opposed like forces of California and the GDPR passing these type of privacy laws to that, you know, value and protect user data. But on the other hand, you know, and, and kind of looking to the government to create maybe a federal rule about this or something similar to GDPR. But on the other hand, the same, you know, different parts of the government, at least in the U.S. here are, and in Australia in particular, are looking to weaken those protections. So, you know, kind of in some ways, it's speaking out of both sides of our mouths. One side says, oh, we really value your, your user data and we value your privacy and we're going to protect it. But then you have organizations turning around and saying, well, you know what? Eh, encryption, that's too strong. We're going to backdoor. We're going to make it weaker in case the government needs to get in. So it, it seems like we're, as citizens, as people of the world, you know, you look at it and you go, what's the truth here? What what are they doing really to protect us? If they say they're going to value the data, if we want our representatives to pass laws and protect the data, I think there's a strong threat to having other parts of the government kind of turn around and say, well, yeah, but we're going to protect your data, but we're going to do it very poorly, you know, or, or we're going to deliberately weaken it. And that just makes me think, like, are they telling me the truth, I guess? If they're not going to really take it seriously, use strong encryption that's been proven instead of weakening it or backdooring it for this false sense of security that we provide. So I think at least the citizens looking going into 2019, I think we need to send a strong message to, you know, our 
our representatives in our government and say, no, we actually do really value privacy and we won't stand for this type of weakening of encryption. Uh, this is, Mike, a slightly different take on this because this is really about data privacy and it's talking about the different laws and things. But in terms of like 2019 and what I see coming is that there's a real difference in the types of attacks and then how people are making money at those attacks. And I think last week we talked about some of the ad fraud, which I think is very interesting in that it's not so much that they're after like your credit card or they're after your specific information, but they want to use your system to help exploit another system uh, at a mass scale in order to reap the benefits of that. In that case, you know, ad fraud, where they would get a payout from that. And as there's new growth and new platforms and new things happening, I think we're going to see that pattern expand more and more where something's very popular now is like Twitch. So you could see people, you know, having their Twitch accounts compromised and then remotely controlled like, oh, hey, go watch this one stream. And then they benefit from that. And that writ across every social and technical platform where it's not even just about a breach. It's about the underlying you know, infrastructure. We talk a lot about compliance and the regulations. And we have listeners from all over the world. And for those who are in IT that have to meet compliance requirements might find it all a little overwhelming to follow. And when GDPR came into effect in May of 2018, then subsequently other countries have been either reviewing or passed something similar of their own, like in Brazil, Argentina. I think Argentina is reviewing it. California's passed something. How have you been helping customers or prospects with their compliance requirements? I, I feel like this is sort of targeted to Sean and, and maybe Killian because you interact with customers most often. It has to be driven by the business first and foremost. A lot of times security, they're really about, I mean, obviously policy and detecting threats. But as far as compliance goes, when it's driven by the business, then the years really perk up. So with GDPR, it got everyone's attention. And then as California sort of promotes their take on it and that becomes live, it's going to be interesting to see how either other states run with it or how the one in California takes effect. So they're taking it seriously. I can take I can say that for the for the most part. The challenge though is there's a couple of things. It's ownership, it's is this a repeatable process? How do we perform this assessment at scale? What are our benchmarks of progress? How do we know that we're at the point where we can confidently say we're compliant? And so those are the challenges because now they're actually looking under the hood and they're saying, how have we gotten here? We've got all these applications. We've got all these databases. We have all these connected devices. We have all these workstations. It's a pretty uh, daunting task to now assess the risks across all these things within an environment. So we're in a very unique position because when you hear about breaches in the news, really these attackers are, are going after files, they're reading emails, it's confidential information, it's the NSA contractor who had access to very sensitive information that the government was working on, and he copied 50 terabytes of what? Unstructured data off of servers he had access to. And so us showing visibility into these things and understanding, well, how many other potential NSA contractors do you have at the moment still working for you with access to data that they probably shouldn't have? So it puts us in a very interesting position to have that conversation. Here's the other really interesting thing that I found talking with people, and I get asked about you know different uh, regulations and compliance um, obligations and things like that all the time. And the thing that I like about GDPR is it's it's quite stringent. But as we've seen, you know, with California introducing it, and, and I expect other states to introduce it in other countries, is that 
it gives people a leg up. I see organizations who, you know, I've talked to said, well, you know, or do you have to comply with GDPR? Well, no, we don't. But we're going to start engineering our processes and our decisions and our kind of risk evaluation to the GDPR standard because I'm kind of moving there. It's a proactive step as opposed to kind of getting caught off guard when a new regulation is is introduced. Like, you know, folks in California, I don't think that they necessarily saw the California GDPR coming, but a lot of them had already started moving towards GDPR compliance in anticipation that something might roll down the street that would force them to it. So it gives them a leg up. It also gives them a business advantage as well, too. So you can say, hey, listen, we don't necessarily fall under GDPR or whatever it happens to be down the road, but we value our customers' trust and we value their data that they've entrusted to us. So we're taking these proactive steps to, again, comply with a or or attempt to comply with a pretty stringent set of criteria laid out by the GDPR. And I think that also would go a long way to building, again, that consumer confidence that the businesses we're dealing with take it seriously. And again, they're going above and beyond. So in that respect, it's not just a cost center, I guess, you know, putting in the effort and security is often looked as a cost center, but this can be turned around and used as a business advantage as well, too. Yeah, I've always thought less about the regulation and more about like what it means in terms of implementation. And, you know, any company that's, you know, seeking to try to comply with the GDPR, whether or not they get a rubber stamp that says, oh, yes, you're absolutely GDPR compliant. The effort to answer the questions that that raises directly impacts the overall security of their systems where they're able to really go in and say like, oh, yes, we can tell, you know, which which files on our network have sensitive information in them. We can tell exactly who has what access. And those sort of like base level things are not just for compliance, because I feel some often that especially in IT, it's looked at as like this giant burden of like, oh, they're just, you know, want us to check these boxes when really it's like a concrete manifestation of all of the collective security knowledge. And if you think of it that way, that it's practical thing, that it's not so just abstract. I completely agree. But I'm also thinking too now of what you like to talk a lot about, Mike, too, is the economics of things. And some of the, a lot of actually the regulatory requirements has been putting Facebook in the spotlight. And I really loved how some economists were really trying to figure out how much value Facebook was really providing for its users. And for some users, they found that it would require more than $1,000 to deactivate their account for a year. And I feel like it also helps to have a bit of context too, because when you hear or see that dollar amount, you'd think Facebook is this brilliant, amazing platform. And it is, but I also think that it helps to understand why they value it in that way. And it's often because that's how people have learned to communicate with their bosses or their managers, or it's become such a big part of their livelihood. And I've also read that to quit Facebook is a bit of a luxury. And the larger point I think that I'm trying to make is that it shows how interconnected and complicated our world has become. And it enables us to have an interesting dialogue. Facebook's always interesting because it's where the rubber meets the road for a lot of people in terms of what they think about their, their personal data being out there, where, you know, so many of the things that people complain about, like ads following them around or tied into the remarketing that comes from Facebook ads. You know, people use Instagram to document their lives and they see ads on there. And there's this complicated relationship they have between all these different services. And how I thought they structured this was really interesting, where they, they aren't saying like, yeah, Facebook could charge $1,000 to people. But if you just went up to someone on the street and said, hey, what would it take right now for you to delete your Facebook account? And they had to get over $1,000 in some cases for people to do that because they 
rely on it so much. And there's all these economic tensions that are always the case of where people find value and user experience and how those fit together. And I think there are lessons there for InfoSec where, you know, that where people choose to spend their time has value and it also makes them a target in some ways. The one comment where the writer mentioned the value you place on something isn't what you pay for it. It's what you'd be willing to pay. And to the point already mentioned, that's kind of it, right? We rely so much on the day-to-day interaction with friends and updating our own lives and, you know, just keeping tab on, on news in some respect. And as a result of that stickiness, Facebook's been able to monetize in the form of selling the ads, of course, without actually charging users a direct fee. So we've sort of fed into the value of our own data in that respect. But I also thought about it if you took the same model and applied it in a different way. I'm looking at something else that I might use on a, on a day-to-day, like how much could you pay me for my car right now? You know, quite frankly, if I told you the actual value of the car, that probably wouldn't be enough. Why? Because I'm thinking a little more if I no longer, if you're paying me not to drive anymore and you want my car, then it's going to be the cost of how else am I going to get around? And then the value of that, the value of the additional time spent in my travels. So now that number goes way above whatever it is that I paid for the car. In terms of the Facebook example, it's interesting, right? Because what do I lose if I did deactivate it? What, what do I now not have as a result? And could I put a number on that? So I thought that was interesting. So for me, taking, you know, Facebook's process of, of monetizing the information they have kind of out of it a little bit, I always thought, or I thought it was kind of interesting, the amount that people valued their accounts. And I thought, you know, how does that connect to GDPR on like a personal level? You know, one of the one of the articles of GDPR says, you know, you have to be able to say, you know, why we're collecting this data and what are we using it for? And again, removing the monetization of Facebook out of it, these people value it so highly that I wonder if you think about it in that way, what is actually happening? What's the, the value that they're seeing out of it, sharing this data out there, you know, and how are people taking advantage of it in a, in a peer-to-peer type of sense? And that's what I kind of thought is, hey, you know, as a thought exercise, the record of processing for, you know, somebody's personal information on there is the value that they can communicate or see the the updates or what, you know, what benefit are they getting out of it? How are people consuming the data that they're putting on Facebook that's generating that value for them? And I, I just thought that was kind of interesting that people value it so highly in that way, aside from the actual monetization. Well, what's really interesting is that Reddit came out with a book on how the founders found the company. And I'm not on Reddit often enough to actually talk about it, but I know a lot of our IT people and people in general are on Reddit and they're on it for community reasons. I like to contrast how Reddit's business model is compared to Facebook. They both are based on ads and Facebook, they're also a community too, except they Reddit, it's more of your value system, your your ideas about something your opinions about something, someone's expertise. It's kind of interesting how you have different platforms with a certain kind of personality. I don't see Reddit going through some of the problems that Facebook's going through, even though to me, they're very similar. So I actually do use Reddit a fair bit. And I know that they have had, compared to Facebook, a lot more trouble monetizing where, you know, for a long time, they were not profitable. I'm not sure exactly where they're at right now. 
now. But, you know, in general, they, they make, an, I think, an order of magnitude less money than Facebook does, despite being, you know, one of the highest traffic websites on the internet. And that is because they do have a, a fairly large commitment to user privacy, where they, for a long time, have had features that let you opt out of things like even Google Analytics on their site and things, which is unusual. And, you know, there's a, even their ad products, which I'm fairly familiar with, are very almost frustratingly opaque in terms of how it's targeted, where it's much more interest targeted and much narrower than you might think compared to Facebook, where it's just, you know, all over the place. And so to me, my concern is always that, you know, we look at how these sites are monetized and what they're doing with their data and how they're interacting with it. And Reddit, who on the face of it seem to be doing everything great, I always worry that they're going to go under or they're going to have troubles despite trying to do the right thing, where as a community, we aren't just throwing money at them to pay for it directly. I always pictured Reddit in the light of being anonymous. And that was an interesting article simply because when you think about some of the challenges they were having that maybe we didn't realize, I guess, on the user side, totally makes sense from the subreddit of the very questionable content that's on there to, you know, how do we manage this data moving forward? You know, cleaning up some of the things that are being discussed that all poked at the heart of why Reddit was created, you know, just being that sort of platform for communication, starting conversation, the freedom of speech. Whereas on the Facebook side of the house, it's sort of, I would say, easier to sort of package how we want to monetize this via ads. You're you're sort of seeing my living history, if you will. So you know what I do on a day-to-day basis, you know, who I spend my time with, where I work potentially. Whereas Reddit, you probably don't get that much granularity or context about individual lives. But to the point of why I think Reddit was in a challenge spot is because at what point do you set a limit that doesn't go against why you know the company existed in the first place? So definitely interesting org change from how they were shifting through CEOs trying to manage that. And with now privacy being at all time high, you know, this needs to be sort of structured in a way where we are taking seriously our core values, but at the same time, still protecting what we'd allow our users to still be able to do, which is, you know, express their freedom of speech. I don't use either one. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I don't use either one that much, but I just found it really fascinating that Reddit became the internet's id and Facebook became the platform that everybody says you shouldn't be on it, but some people are highly addicted and maybe that's sort of the brand story that everybody has to sell that at the end of the day too, it's a it's a business and it depends on how much you're willing to pay and how much value it is. And it's, it's a great time to be living to discuss this phenomenon, I think. So Mike, do we have a tool of the week? Yes. I'm struggling to remember. <laughs> the tool of this for this week is Sputnik. It's an open source intelligence browser extension. And what it's for is that, you know, there's a variety of different resources on the internet for doing things like, you know, reverse IP lookups, DNS lookups, doing investigations. And that stuff can be real tedious. So this browser extension lets you script out where you want to submit things to. So if you're browsing through a site, you can like right click on a link and immediately look up the IP and send it to one of the different services. And you can extend and customize this yourself. So it's interesting to me for a couple of reasons. One, that it's a nice security user experience. It's a nice way to get into a little bit of JavaScript coding. And it's a neat way to look into browser extensions with our both a source of great utility and great security risks. So that's Sputnik, open source intelligence browser extension. Thanks to Mike Buckby, Sean Campbell, Killian Engler, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you enjoyed our panel discussion, please subscribe to our show. You can find more episodes of the Inside Out Security Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
and more. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell others about the show. It helps them discover great discussions like we had today. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.